So I told the earlier service, um, so we're doing this series on Ephesians and I was studying Ephesians with a group of people on Wednesday nights back in the spring. So coming into the summer, I figured, oh, we've already done the work. We got this figured out. I know how this is gonna go. So preparing for worship each week during the summer is not gonna be a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so I mean, and it happens. So like, like this is not what I expected it to be today at all. <laughs> um, as I was coming into this week, I had a really clear idea of what we'd be doing. And then as I sat down and started to do the work, it just it's turned into something different, something that's actually gonna last over two weeks and it's gonna be interrupted by a week. So like, we're gonna talk about a passage this week. Next week, we're gonna go back a whole section in Ephesians 5 and then the following week, we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk about this again. Make sense? <laughs> All right, so um, anyway, so I just tell you that to be a little, like I came into this morning honestly kind of terrified, um, a little worried, like not comfortable and feeling like I was not in control of the message. And then after preaching at eight, I realized that's probably exactly where I need to be every week um, because I'm not in control of the message. So uh, let's pray <laughs> and then we're gonna, uh, we're gonna do a little Bible study today, all right? Uh, let's pray, here we go. God, um, as always, we're grateful that we can gather together um, around your word and grateful that every time we come to your word, the diamond turns, we see the light in a new way, there's new insight, there's deeper understanding, there's bigger perspective because the scriptures are the living word of God. They are not stale, they do not get old, they are not irrelevant, they are life-giving. They breathe into our lungs and they change who we are. So pray that as we read this passage today, um, that that would come through, and that you would be in charge of this message as you always are. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. So we're gonna do a little Bible study. I wanna give you three terms uh, to get started. You may have heard us use these before, uh, but these are three terms that we use when we approach scripture. The first one is the word exegesis. Um, exegesis is what the Bible actually says. So anybody who preaches or teaches here at this church must do exegesis. Our job is to look at the scripture and find out what it's actually saying. What we are not to do is the next word, eisegesis. Eisegesis is what I want the Bible to say. And sadly, this happens a lot. I have an idea of what this text is about, so rather than do the work, I just start preaching it. Even more dangerous than eisegesis is what comes next. <laughs> And it's the word narcissus. <laughs> and that's when you interpret scripture as if it's all about you. <laughs> and I will tell you, those last two, eisegesis and narcissus, the church historically is guilty of both of those things when it comes to the passage that we're gonna read today. All right, so keep that in mind. Um, to get into this, uh, I was thinking about it and I hope this makes sense. Um, like I found that like in my personal relationships, friendships, family, in my relationships at work, um, I find that especially when things start to get like a little tense, I found that this is usually about that. And do you know what I mean by that? I, have you heard that phrase before? Like, um, like sometimes what we react to is just, it's a small issue, it's not really a big deal. But it comes at a time when we're wrestling with something else that actually is. Um, 
I've shared this before, but like at home, like um, maybe I get home at the end of a busy week or after a Sunday, um, and that's when the texts from the kids start to roll in, and it's, Dad, can you, whatever, or Dad, I need something expensive. <laughs> um, or like you walk in the door, and my sweet wife, who say, uh, don't forget, we have to go to, or did you do that thing we talked about this morning? And typically I forgot the thing we had to go to and I didn't do the thing I was supposed to do. Um, and I mean, sometimes I handle it okay. Sometimes. Sometimes I don't. <laughs> um, I overreact. Um, I will start uh, complaining about whatever I'm being asked to do. Um, I will start getting very philosophical and questioning the validity of doing said thing at all. Um, I will start to wonder, like, who made this terrible decision months ago that has led to this moment where my day is now turned upside down? <laughs> like, that's, all, that's always happening in here. It just doesn't, <laughs> only sometimes it comes out. Um, but like, when I start to go down this road, that doesn't go very well, right? So like, do you see what I'm talking about now? Um, like, is it reasonable for me to be tired or feel pressure or stressed when, I, when I've just got stuff I have to do, right? Is it reasonable for me to work out a schedule and figure out how to get my stuff done? Like, of course it is. Like, that's dealing with my job as a pastor. And is it reasonable for my family to ask me to help? Like, to provide and care for things when they can't do that themselves? Like, of course it is. This is my job as a husband. But when I overreact or get out of line with my family... Typically, this is about that. Like what I'm mad about, this thing at home is not worth getting mad about at all. I'm worked up because of that, because of something else entirely. And, and the same thing happens in reverse, right? Things at home might be the actual source of concern or worry, and I'll take my fear and frustration out on the people that I work with. And either way, it's wrong. So do you understand what I mean by this and that? This is usually about that. So the passage that I'm gonna read today um, I think it's a really good example of how this and that, of how it plays out not only in our relationships, but also in the way that we interpret and study scripture. Um, so over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're gonna hear about three different types of relationships that Paul is gonna talk about. He, he's not talking about every relationship, but he focuses on three. He's gonna talk about our relationships between husband and wife, the relationship between fathers and their children, and the relationships between masters and their servants. And we will get really practical and we're gonna talk in detail about those relationships two weeks from now. But this, relationships between husbands and wives, fathers and children, and masters and servants, this is not what Ephesians 5 and 6 are actually about. This is about that. And what that is, is something beautiful and profound and we almost always miss it. So today we're gonna to focus on that because we have to understand the core of this passage before we can begin to talk about how it plays out in our relationships with one another. Does that make sense? Is that fair? All right, so we're gonna start with a, a quick example of how this works, um, a quick example of this and that in Ephesians 5, and then I'm gonna show you how it plays out throughout the rest of the chapter. So this is uh, the first reading, Ephesians 5. I'm gonna read verses 15 through 21. Uh, it says this, it says, so then be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, in which there is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God our Father. And subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. All right, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And what tends to happen in our minds is when we hear, be filled with spirit, speak and sing, we start to drown it out. And what we focus on is the most dramatic thing we heard just before that. The most personal thing we heard. Some will hear this passage and you think it's all about alcohol. It's all about getting drunk. These seven verses are not about drinking. That is just the illustration. It's not the main idea. This is about that. Like for some reason, uh, especially when we read scripture, we confuse those two things all the time. We confuse the illustration for the main idea. And really terrible teaching in the history of the church has come because of that. So we need context. And in this little passage I've read so far, we have three nots, right? Like three do nots. And we have three buts. So live not as unwise people, but live as wise people. Do not be foolish, but understand. And then do not get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking, singing, giving thanks. More context. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus' followers, Jesus has ascended to be with God, and Jesus' followers are filled with the Holy Spirit. We call it the day of Pentecost. They were literally on fire with the gospel. There were little flames that sat on their heads. But even more profound on that day, they were speaking and people from all different areas, people who spoke all different languages, everybody could understand what was being said. So listen to how the people around them reacted. Um, Some said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. (laughs) Look at those crazy Christians, they're drunk. Okay, you have a little context. Do you see the picture Paul is painting? Now look, of course, don't get drunk on wine because it's unwise, it's foolish, and it leads you to walk around stumbling. It leads to some pretty inappropriate behavior. Instead, do what? Drink in the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, you're going to run around dancing and singing and giving thanks. Not because the alcohol has dulled your inhibitions, but because the Spirit of God has filled your lungs. You've changed the oil. You've got new fuel in your system. It means you're going to be a little different. And when the world around you watches, they're going to have no clue what's going on. They might look at you and think you're crazy. They must have had too much wine. But you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and that leads to real life. Not some fermented drink that dulls your senses and makes you foolish. So drinking is just the illustration. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's the main idea. There is, of course, wisdom here about drunkenness. But to take this passage, pull out that one part of one verse, it's not even a whole verse, one part of one verse 
and make it about a restriction on the use of alcohol, which the church and cultures have historically done, that is taking this text out of context. It's making the illustration the point. But this is about that. Paul is trying to get us to see, drink in the spirit of God, breathe in the breath of God and you'll sing. You'll speak the words of God to each other. You'll know whom to thank for the good and beautiful things around you. And the world might think you're a little crazy because of it. But you know what's gonna make them think we're really drunk? <laughs> like we're really out of our minds? Is what it says will happen next. We'll sing, we'll dance, we'll sing to one another, but it says that we will subject ourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Another translation says it this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's where we turn to the larger point. This is where we begin to see what the rest of Ephesians 5 and the first part of Ephesians 6, this is what it's all about. And again, as I read this, I'm gonna remind you, this is about that. Like listen closely and see if you can tell the difference between the illustration and the main idea, okay? Are we still, are y'all tracking with me? Are we on the same page? Okay, that's good, because I, I gotta finish now. <laughs> I mean, I'm halfway through. Okay, um, so this is verse 21, and I'll read through 26. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should, submit, should submit to their husbands in everything. And before I read the next part, I just want to tell you, if you're ever listening to a teaching or a sermon and it stops right there, I'm just giving you permission to stop listening. I mean, for real. If you were ever listening to this being preached or taught and that's where they stop, just tone it out. Turn it off. Keep reading on your own and ignore what's being said. Because the next part is what makes all that make sense. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So obviously the main idea of these six verses is the hierarchy that's supposed to exist in the relationship between men and women, right? Women, submit. That's the main idea, right? Of course not. That's part of an illustration of a much larger point. The point, the main idea is the nature of our relationship with Christ. The nature of the relationship between Jesus and his church. It is so much more beautiful. Now look, I'll grant you, like these verses and continuing all the way through verse nine in chapter six, they're really specific and they give really practical details about the three relationships that I mentioned, husband and wife, father, child, master, servant. This section is often called the household codes. It's a reference to a common practice in ancient philosophy and religion. Aristotle is one of the first to really discuss this. Paul is using that system to make a deeper point, a really profound point, and again, we're gonna talk about it more in a couple weeks. We're gonna talk about those ancient codes, we're gonna talk about these relationships, and we're gonna talk about how that instructs us to live together. But you cannot begin to have that conversation. I would argue it's inappropriate to begin to have that conversation until you have first worked through 
what this has to say about Jesus and his church. And we have done this out of order in the past and it has caused real damage, not only in the church, but in society. Like any time scripture is used to relegate any image bearer of God to second class citizenship, women, children, even servants, it is a misuse of scripture and we must repent. Christianity Today, a couple years ago, they released this cartoon. Um, it was about the Apostle Paul and the women who lived in the city of Ephesus in the first century. And I'm gonna quote the description from an author named Daryl Johnson. He says, Paul just arrives to the city gates. He's carrying a bedroll and some scrolls. And he's greeted by women whose faces suggest they might be angry. They're carrying placards that read, women of Ephesus unite. On another one, Paul is a male chauvinist pig. And under Paul's feet, there's a caption that says, oh, I see you got my letter. <laughs> like Johnson goes on to say, the cartoon gets it all wrong. If anyone in Ephesus would have staged a protest against Paul, it would have been the men. Because what Paul writes in this letter, it turns the first century understanding of relationships, it turns it on its head. And here's how we know he's right. Remember verse 21. It sets up the entire section. It gives us the context that we need to understand what we're reading and how it applies to our lives. And it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how the previous section ends and it's how the new section begins. It's the hinge on which we understand this entire chapter. Submit to one another. This means, yes, wives to husbands and husbands to wives. Children to fathers and fathers to children. Servants to masters and masters to servants. And is it, is it only those relationships or might it apply to all of our relationships? Y'all, this is radical. Like it's so radical, we're still not doing it well 2,000 years later. Like what we are being called to is a community of mutual submission because of our reverence and awe and love of Christ. Now the ways that we are called to submit to one another, they are clearly different. How we submit is different and Paul describes that. That's described in multiple places throughout scripture. Like scripture clearly does say that the husband is the head of the wife and the household just as Christ is the head of the church. Like when the two can't agree, the wife should be able to trust her husband to make the right decision for the entire family. In chapter six, children are to obey their fathers and servants are to obey their masters because they should both be able to trust that the father is doing what's right by them. And again, there's more to say about that in two weeks, but, but men should be worthy of this trust. But it doesn't just stop there. We are to live in mutual submission. Husbands, you are the head of the wife and the head of the household. She is to trust you and follow you in all things. That's what it says. So then, how are you to serve her in all things? How did Christ serve his church? By dying for her. 
By giving it all. By taking himself off his throne and making himself one of us. Like if you want to know what it means to mutually submit to one another, look no further than the cross. Look no further than this meal that's prepared at this table. Remember that after this meal, Jesus washed his disciples' dirty feet. Remember, they protested because they felt like it was inappropriate. That's how radical it is. Submit to one another, just as Christ has submitted to and has served us. If the king of kings can submit and serve, then so can I. Amen? Yes, amen. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, it's like a husband and wife go to a car dealership. Uh, it's time to buy a new car and, and she really wants that blue convertible sports car. Like, I don't know if that's what women want, but in our house, Jennifer wants the convertible Mustang. So that's eventually what we're gonna get. <laughs> um, so, so she really wants the blue convertible sports car, but he wants the red pickup truck, all right? And they just can't come to an agreement. So they turn to scripture. And the husband says, well, honey, it says I'm the head, so we're getting the pickup. And what does the wife say back? Yeah, sweetie, you are the head, just as Christ is the head of his church. And he died for her, so we're getting the convertible. (laughs) I mean, it's silly, but sometimes this plays out in really like, Profound in negative ways, right? Like we so quickly turn these things into a battle of the sexes when what's being painted for us, it's this beautiful painting, it's like tapestry of mutual submission, each according to the roles that God has designed for us. And do you know what might happen if we trusted God's design? Like things might start to work. If wives can't trust their husbands to lead, if husbands aren't loving and trustworthy in their leadership, it all falls apart. And sadly, I think that describes a lot of what we see today. You see, this is why we do the hard work, the exegesis. This is why we do the hard work to understand scripture in its context because this passage has been used throughout history to relegate women and children and servants to second-class citizenship, and it's wrong. Like, I hope you can clearly see, it is leading us to live lives of mutual submission, mutually submissive relationships. Because when we do, it is a beautiful illustration of something greater. It helps to make the greater point. It reveals to the world around us something amazing about who God is. The main idea is Jesus' love for his church. Listen to how the section ends. It says, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. (laughs) I mean, it literally says it right there. (laughs) Like it literally said, everything I just told you is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband as Christ has loved his church as himself and the church returns with respect for him. 
It says it right there. Marriage is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. Y'all, this is so important because when we don't understand this, we are missing the good news. We're missing the most beautiful message ever that you, the church, are Christ's beloved. Like, he has set you apart for himself. He has set himself apart for you. He's committed himself to you forever. He has paid the price that needs to be paid so that you can be claimed as his own. He's off right now preparing a home for you. He's making plans for the greatest wedding celebration you can even imagine and a party to follow. Revelation describes it. Remember like Revelation where everything goes to hell in the end? That's not what happens, right? Listen to this. This is the end of Revelation. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. Like what we have right now, here and now, between us, it is a beautiful anticipation of something we can hardly imagine. It is an anticipation of that incredible wedding day. What I love about this, what I love about this illustration, it's for everybody. It applies to everybody, not just those who are married right now. Like for those who are married, your marriage is meant to be an anticipation of our covenant relationship with God. But for those of you who are single, it applies to you too. Because in your singleness, you're living as an expression of this time of engagement, this time of waiting, a bride being made ready for her husband. You are a living anticipation of the day when the church meets her groom, the day when we are all united with Christ forever. Like I said, there's a lot more to say about all this, about the word submit, that's really important, (laughs) about the meaning of love, about the historic understanding of gender and generational and service roles within the household. Of course, about what this means for us 2,000 years later, again, in two weeks, I promise we're gonna get into all that. And from the looks of it, it's gonna be like a five-hour sermon. (laughs) Um, But again, like our passage today is not about drinking and marriage. This is about that. This passage is not about drinking and marriage. It is about so much more. It is about Christ's deep, abiding, eternal, and committed love for us. So I just wanna leave you uh, with this. There there are three really clear, quick implications that come to us out of this passage. Um, First is be careful. That's from verse 15. And it is ironic. This should not be missed on us. It's ironic that a passage that begins with the words be careful has historically been treated so recklessly. Be careful. The Christian life, this way that we are called to walk in the world, it is not a game. It is not a joke. Marriage is not a game. It is not a joke. It is not something to be entered into thoughtlessly. We need to reject, fundamentally reject this idea that I'll get married but if it doesn't work out. Like I'm just telling you, if that even crosses your mind, don't get married. You have to wait. 
We have to fundamentally reject that's happening in our culture. We have to take these things seriously and not misuse them to our own advantage. When it comes to submission and authority, there's simply no way that the way of Jesus can ever result in one group of people who lord their authority over another. It can't happen. So when we apply any scripture to our earthly relationships with one another, be careful. The second one is be filled. The Christian life by definition is a spirit-filled life. Last week I told you that there's no salvation without sanctification and there is no sanctification without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. This is a spirit-filled life and spirit-filled people are weird. <laughs> like we are to the world around us, we are gonna look weird. We're gonna look strange. They might think you've had too much wine. But listen, like what does it say about the church if we don't look strange? What does it say about the church if we look no different than the world around us? What does it say about the church if when the world looks at us, they don't see a reflection of their loving father, they just see a reflection of themselves? And one of the most significant ways that we are called to look different from the world around us One of the strangest things about us is the third thing, that we are to be in submission to one another. And I'll make this point using Jesus' words. Jesus had two disciples one time. They were walking on the street. They came up to him and they said, hey, Jesus, we want to sit at your right and left. What were they asking? We want positions of authority and power. The other disciples heard this. How'd they feel about that? And not super excited. So Jesus pulls them all together and he says this, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people. Officials flaunt their authority over those who are under them. But among you, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul absolutely has that story in mind when he writes, submit yourselves to one another in reverence of Jesus Christ. Amen? We'll talk more about the implications of all this practically in two weeks. Next week, we're gonna go back and look at verses three through 14. Let's pray. Um, Father, as we, uh, as we just get the context for your word, as we wrestle, um, as we wrestle with a history of missing the point, We pray that you would continue to guide us and teach us and surprise us. The moments that we think we've got it figured out, that we understand what these scriptures are all about, that you'd stop us in our tracks and show us. Show us the deeper truth and show us how to apply it to our lives. We pray that the truth of your deep and abiding love for us, we pray that it would be expressed in the way that we interact and have relationships with one another. Only you can show us that way. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said. Amen.